boy, do we have a text to go through today, don't we? Anybody read ahead? Whew, let's do it. Um, we do. We have a heavy text to go through today. It was uh, probably really heavy when the church in Corinth started reading through it for the first time. And uh, it may seem as though this text isn't... Uh, I don't know, maybe at first glance it may not seem like it's entirely applicable to our context today. Uh, but I promise you, at face value, it, it really does apply to us today, as well as if we dive a little bit deeper um, into the, the heart behind some of the things that Paul is addressing. Uh, so we're going to dive right in today, but first let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. God, we thank you so much for this time uh, that we can... Come as a people before you. And we can come before you as we are. Knowing that you see us and you know us better than we see and know ourselves. And you see the whole of us. You don't just see the part of us that we present to people, the part that we allow others to see. You see uh, into the depths of our hearts. You see the depths of the sin that we are uh, still wrestling with. Some of us are still enslaved to. You see all of it and you offer love. You offer grace. You offered your son as a reminder of the continuation of your love and grace. And so God, as we deal with... uh, weighty things today. God, I pray that we would deal with them through the lens of who you are. Through the lens of who you've revealed yourself to be in your word, who you've revealed yourself to be through Christ and what he did for us, and who you continue to reveal yourself to be in light of your continued love and grace. So be with us this day as we go through this passage. We pray pray that your spirit would be so evident in this place that you would lead us to truth, that you would lead us away from sin, and that you would lead us into a deeper understanding of your love for us so that we can leave this place different than the way we came in. God, convict our hearts. Draw us to you in Christ's name. Amen. So before we read our actual passage for the day, let's do a little refresh on where we left off. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 were the last two verses that Pastor Chris covered last week, and I want to just read them for a little bit of context today. Starting in verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is the beautiful verse that we left off on last week. Verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is where we left off last week on a particularly high note. Uh, What a beautiful place to leave off as we reflect upon who Christ is and, and what he did for us and what that means for us. 
as we reflect upon His, His work in washing us and sanctifying us and presenting us as not guilty in God's sight through our justification. I mean, I can't think of a more positive way to, to cap off a section. However, as is the case, as we've seen in Corinthians up to this point, uh, usually if we end off in a good place, it, it means that there's going to be a stiff jab coming, right? Paul kind of tends to do that. It's like, hey, let me, let me build you up, and then... And that's exactly what happens here. So let's get to the stiff jab that is verses 12 through 20. Starting in verse 12. Paul says, all things are lawful for me, quote, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, let's pray and end for the day. What do you think? Now, there's a lot of good stuff in here for us. It's hard to imagine that on the heels of uh, talking about the redemptive work of Christ to the Corinthians that uh, there hasn't been an, uh, an audience change, right? We just ended in verse 11 with talking about the beautiful work of redemption that has been done for the church in Corinth. And it seems like, man, we're in a really good place. And then all of a sudden, oh yeah, by the way, we got to address your whole sex with temple prostitutes thing. What? How could we be talking to the exact same audience, an audience that has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, an audience that has been sanctified, has been washed, has been made anew by the work of Christ, and now we're talking about such a, I mean, I I think what we would all consider to be a pretty heinous act, right? Like, does that shock any of you? That there hasn't been an audience change, that we're talking about the redeemed children of God, and now we are talking about people who are going into the temples and having sex with temple prostitutes. That should take us back a little bit. And yet, I don't know about you, but I also find a sense of comfort in that. Right? That Paul could be talking to redeemed brothers and sisters And also people who were still fully engaged with the sin that was, what, sin number one on the list that he just gave three verses previous? I think there's a little bit of comfort in that. And the fact that once we are washed, though sin remains, we are no longer defined by it. 
But that is not the definition of who we are. It may be, it may be something that we are still wrestling with. It may be something that, uh, is still being washed, being sanctified, that hasn't been fully removed from our lives, and yet we are not defined by those terms. In no place in this section will you see Paul calling into question the fact that they are God's redeemed children. He says that. And then he calls them back to the beauty of what is to address what else is there. He addresses the darkness through the light. He says, this is who you are. Now let's look at what you do. And again, as somebody who has wrestled with sin from the day that I came to Christ, my third grade year, I find comfort in the fact that when God looks at me, he sees his son. And that he loves me enough to still come after my sin. And so that's what we're dealing with today. That was just a a side point that I thought, just in light of what Chris led last week and where we left off. And I think it's important as we go into this weighty topic of what they're dealing with and what we're dealing with today, to look at it in light of its proper context. And that is for those of us who have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is still as true today as it was the day you came to Christ. And that is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And if we couldn't boast in our obtaining salvation, we definitely are not able to boast in our maintaining our salvation. All of it, our justification, our sanctification, and the beautiful hope that one day we will be glorified has been accomplished in our faith in the past, present, and future work of Jesus. And it's through that lens that we continue to wrestle with our sin, that we continue to deal with the sin that remains. The problem is that a lot of times when we look at grace, it leads us down some pretty shaky paths. And that's what happened in Corinth. They mistook the grace of God and it led to some really heinous application of what that means for the way that they live their lives. And that's what Paul begins addressing today in verse 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Notice the, the quotation marks around the all things are lawful for me. We don't know why they're there. We don't know where this quote comes from. But it's clear that Paul is throwing this out there in relationship to uh, the philosophy of the day, the, the beliefs of the Corinthian church and how they live their lives. So we don't know if this is a uh, if this is like their YOLO of the day. Anybody? YOLO? That was like a week. Week and a half. YOLO? Anyone? I'll just say it again. YOLO? Anyway, you only live once, right? And that was kind of big for a little bit where it's like, oh, I really should drink that or smoke that or jump off that or do these crazy things, but YOLO! And then they would do the stupid thing that they shouldn't have done. But that phrase kind of encapsulated a culture, or at least a season in our culture, or we looked at the world around of us in light of the fact that we only live once and say, man, so I better, I better get to trying. I better get to doing all of these crazy things. And maybe that is what this phrase is. It could also be, uh, it could also derive from a misapplication from one of Paul's 
previous teachings to the church regarding grace. This is probably a more likely scenario. Um, we see this throughout Scripture. We see it in uh, Romans in particular, Romans 6, where Fritz just led from. Uh, Paul is actually assuming that his uh, mostly Jewish audience is going to misapply the beauty of grace that he just explained in chapter 5. Right? And so he, he comes at them with the questions that he undoubtedly knows is going to be on their mind. One of them being, so, so we can just do what we want then? Is that what you're saying? We can just do what we want because there's grace? Pump the brakes. That's my translation. Paul doesn't actually say pump the brakes. But the point still remains that uh, Paul was assuming that there would be a misunderstanding when it comes to grace. And why is that? Well, let's... Let's break it down for a second. I know that we talk about grace a lot. We use that word often. We sing about it. Um, she attends our youth group. Where is Grace? Grace, are you here? No, she's helping out in children's church. Why? Because her name is Grace. She's giving undeserved favor to Laura. It's unbelievable. Um, anyway, sorry. This is when I get away from my notes. Uh, but the point is that when we look at grace, we talk about grace, but when we actually consider what grace is, it makes sense why there may be some misapplications. Just think about it. When we talk about God's grace, it means that in light of our faith in God, or in light of our faith in rather what Christ did for us, Christ coming to earth as a man, living a perfect life, dying on a cross, raising from the dead three days later. Because of our faith in what everything that Christ did, we receive God's grace, his unmerited favor. Because of what someone else did, our sin gets covered. Does that make sense in our economy? I mean, honestly, does that make sense to you? Do any of you operate in that way, in of yourself? No. We live in a world that says, I earn what I get. I earn my keep. I earn my share. I, you like me because I'm likable. You hate me because I deserve it. I work hard. I get a raise, right? We live in this mindset and grace is totally foreign to that. And so it makes sense that when Paul comes into a place preaching the reality of God's grace, that there may be some misapplication. For the Jews, it was often, well, yeah, Jesus is cool, but like, I got to do some other stuff though, right? And for the Gentile, it was, yeah, Jesus is really cool. I can go do whatever I want, right? Eh. And that's what Paul is addressing here in Corinth in a mostly Gentile audience. He's saying, okay, let's, let's pump the brakes on this all is lawful for me because of what Christ did for me, understanding. And let's really break down what we're saying here. Let's really break down what grace is and what it's meant to do. What the Corinthians failed to realize about God's grace is that once we are washed, we are free to pursue that which benefits us Instead of that which destroys us. Let's think about what Fritz came up and read for us. Just a, just a part of what he reads in, in Romans chapter 6, verses 20 through 23. Paul writes, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Meaning, it didn't matter how you lived. There was nothing you could do that would please God. There was no amount of church you could attend. There was no amount of offerings you could burn. You could follow the entire law if that was even possible. And you know what? It didn't really matter. Because guess what? You were dead in your sin. You were free in regards to righteousness. 
You didn't have to worry about how you lived. You were going to burn with it anyway. And yet, where are we now? For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Or maybe rather, things of which that we should now be ashamed of. For the end of those things is death. But now, but now, so now speaking to the redeemed, the washed, the sanctified, the justified, now speaking to that audience, he says, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And in its end is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the same argument that Paul brings in verse 12. You say all things are lawful in light of grace. You say YOLO because of grace. And yet, are the choices that you are making helpful? That word in the Greek means, are, are, they, are they useful in producing good fruit? Are they useful to producing a good end for you, for those around you? Is it helpful, the things that you are doing? You say all things are lawful, but are your choices actually enslaving you? Bringing you back under the bondage of the very things that you were freed from? Still, there was more than a, than a misapplication of grace um, or a phraseology of the time that was keeping them from Christ-like living. Let's look at verse 13. Notice again we have quotation marks. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Again, this is apparently a, a known saying or philosophy and one here that was being used to justify sexual immorality. And so their conclusion was, in the same way that food is made for the stomach, sex is made for the body. This stemmed from a Greek culture that devalued the material world. And this stretches all the way back to to Plato, right? And all the way up through. This included their bodies and their desires, which were all considered to be of the natural world. They were to be something that was endured and and maybe to be enjoyed until they were made perfect in the next life. And so when they looked at their bodies, when they looked at their desires, they were seen as less than. They were seen as material. They were seen as of this world. They had to be endured. And one day, the body, its desires, all of that would be perfected. And so let's not, let's not get hampered down so much by the physical in this life. Let's start thinking about the perfect of the next life. Let's make that our focus. Let's, let's philosophize about, about those things. Let's not focus so much on our body, on what we eat, on the sex that we have, on the, on the urges that we have. Like these things, they're just, it's all of this life. And so their argument is that sex is as natural as a desire to, be, to eat. Both are merely physical. They're going to pass away. So if I'm hungry, what difference does it make if I go to McDonald's or if I go to Burger King or if I go to Wendy's to get the burger? And if I'm in the mood for sex, what does it really matter where I go to get it? Whether it's my neighbor, whether it's my coworker, or whether it's a temple prostitute. It's just an urge that needs to be fulfilled and I'm fulfilling it. What's wrong with that? 
So Paul counters this cultural thinking in regards to sex in the body with some biblical thinking. Let's go on with verse 13. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up uh, us up by his power. Sorry about that. Here Paul says, God designed our bodies and its desires with an eternal purpose in mind. And he begins to flesh that out in the, in the verses ahead. While they thought the body and its desires were something to be endured, God designed man in a way that he did with a purpose in mind. To be his and to be used by him as an instrument that reflects him to a world that needs to know him and as an instrument of worship to him, both in this life and as Paul reveals in the second half of this verse, also in the life to come. You see, the Greeks would have been really comfortable if Paul would have used a different word to, to define us, to define our bodies. They would have been really comfortable with the word sarks that Paul uses very often. We see it whenever Paul is talking about the flesh. Right? How often we see in Paul's writings, almost all of his writings, where at some time we are called to, uh, to move away from the flesh, to put to death the flesh, to not fulfill the desires of the flesh, which is what he says in Romans chapter 13, verse 14, where he says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This was the part of us that we endure. This is the part of us that is going to pass away. This is the part of us that needs to die and be redeemed. And the Greeks kind of had this understanding of the whole of us. And Paul says that's not, that's not right. That's not who we are. And so he uses a different word in this particular passage. He uses the word soma, which is the same word that he uses in Romans 12 verse 1 where he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Present your soma as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is a word that Paul uses to represent the whole of who we are. Everything that makes up who you are, everything that makes up who I am, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual components that make up the whole of who we are, this is what we give to Christ when we place our faith in Him as our perfect sacrifice. This is what we give to Him as a spiritual act of worship in light of what He's done for us. We submit our bodies, our soma, the whole of who we are to the one we now worship. And we let him continue his work of washing and sanctifying the whole of who we are until the day that we're resurrected and made perfect. And it's in light of this view of self, something that was very counter to the culture that he was addressing. It's in light of this view of the body of who we are that we have verses 15 through 20. Where Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies, your soma, the whole of who you are, everything that you are, are now members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Again, the whole of who you are. Every part of who you are. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Pastor Chris is going to, uh, he's going to speak a lot about, uh, next week that temple of the Holy Spirit and this, this element of the, the Spirit living inside of us and us being a temple and the wholeness of what that means. But today I, I really want to, uh, focus our attention on what Paul is addressing from a, from a sin standpoint. What Paul is addressing to, uh, not only from a sin standpoint, but also from a, a cultural standpoint as well, from a source standpoint. Here Paul is saying that since the whole of who we are belongs to Christ, he alone defines who we are and how we live. Since everything that we are, everything that makes up who we are becomes his the day that we make him the Lord of our life, he is the one that calls the shots when it comes to who we are and how we live. When you place your faith in Christ, you made yourself one with him. You became his members, his instruments. This is something that uh, later on in Corinthians, Paul is going to talk a lot about when we talk about what the church is, that we are all his members. It's that, it's that same language. We are the hands and the feet. We are, we are the instruments that he uses to carry out his purposes on this, on this earth, bought and paid for with the price of his blood. And as a result, we who belong to Jesus, we're no longer our own. No longer free in regards to righteousness. No longer free to define what is and isn't appropriate in God's sight. He defined what righteousness is in regards to sex the day he created us with the ability to engage in it. And he even defined who it was meant for as well as the appropriate context for it, which is the context of marriage. And to defy his definition and engage in sexual immorality is a sin, not only against your own body, but against the one who resides in you. And while the definition of sex that God approves of is limited to one man and one woman under the covenant of marriage, something that seems uh, limited, at least from a cultural standpoint, there are many definitions for sexual immorality in the eyes of God. We're talking about one here today. That is specifically sex with a temple prostitute. But the Greek word for sexual immorality that Paul uses here is uh, pornea, which simply means an illicit sexual act. A.K.A. any form of sexual expression that finds itself outside of its God-designed original intended purpose. So while the term we see here throughout this passage refers to sex with a temple prostitute, an illicit sexual act... It could mean anything from thinking lustfully about a woman, which Matthew condemns and uh, which Jesus condemns in Matthew five twenty eight, to our modernized version of visiting the temple prostitute through our uh, phones and our computer screens. Anything sexually explicit, anything that is uh, outside of the context sexually from what God has given it for, that is what He defines as sexual immorality. And that is because, to God, sex is much more than a physical act. 
He had much more than that in mind, much more than uh, what the church in Corinth and, and honestly our culture today has reduced it to be. We look at sex as just something that we do and how we express it as an expression of ourselves and yet God gave us sex. He gave it. Man, talk to Robin Cricket. They've got, do you guys have like a curriculum that you made talking about sex and like, you might? Okay. Possibly. You might want to talk to them about it. I don't know. Get fit on your understanding of what sex is for. CrossFit. That was a shameless plug. Anyway, um, point being, God is the one who gave it to us and therefore he is the one who defines it for us. He designed sex with a purpose and a picture in mind. To both deepen and celebrate the bond of intimacy between a man and a wife, but also as a picture. As a picture of the intimacy, the oneness, the knownness that is made available to us through Christ in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. I know it's weird for us sometimes to talk about sex in relationship to our relationship with God, and yet uh, God was very intentional. I know sometimes we look at animals like zebras and we're like, what was God thinking? You know, like, that's just so random. Sex is not random. It wasn't an add-on at the end. What's your favorite line, Rob, about the, maybe not here? Okay, that's fine. Okay. But sex wasn't an afterthought. He didn't create us and then thought, no, why not? But instead, he designed it with with a purpose. Yes, for procreation. Absolutely. I'm glad you all are here. You wouldn't be without sex. That was part of its intended purpose. But there's also pleasure in mind. There's also an intimacy bond in mind. And, that's, and that is, is true just by, uh, just by talking about, but also in the science behind what happens when, when a male and female engages in sexual activity. Guys, this is by design from God to draw a man and a woman closer together. To make them one. One flesh. This is a huge element of becoming one flesh. Obviously, there is the emotional investment, there's the financial investment, there is the spatial investment of moving in together. All of these things make up, along with sex, part of that becoming one flesh that he has designed. And it's beautiful. And when we allow our culture to cheapen it to a physical act, to an expression of yourself, to your choice, to your preferences, what we do is we looked at the designer and we said, not good enough. What you gave us, not sufficient. I got something else in mind. And that's what we see in Corinth right now, and that's a big problem. Sexual immorality is a sin against our body. There's a lot of debate on what that means. The funniest one... (laughs) This isn't in my notes. Uh, the funniest one that I heard, it was in a very old commentary. They thought that that meant that because uh, there are STDs today, that that is how it's a sin against our own body because we can get the STDs. And that's what it means that it's a sin against our own body. I laughed at that. I didn't really think that's what Paul was going for there. Uh, but he does talk about how it's a sin against the whole of who we are. It's not just a physical sin. It's a sin against the whole of who we are. Because sexual sin touches the deepest parts of who we are in a way that few other things can. 
And thus it distorts our view and our desire to pursue intimacy within its proper context. Both with the one we are called to love in this life, horizontally and vertically. Sex distorts. It perverts when it's outside of its intended boundaries, when it's outside of its intended context. But it is beautiful, and it is enriching, and it is fulfilling, and it is a gift when used within the bounds that God gave us. And so his command is simple. When it comes to all things sexual immorality, flee it. Flee it. And I think that's our first and undeniably our clearest application from this text. If you're here today and you find yourself in a dating relationship that has gone physical, or it is on the border and tipping in that direction, flee. Run from it. End that relationship today. Or put yourself in a series of other relationships that can help guide that river down its proper banks before you've got a flood of awfulness on your hands. If you find yourself in a relationship with a, with a co-worker, with a neighbor, maybe it hasn't even gotten physical, but maybe you know that the conversation, maybe you know that the interaction is starting to bend in that favor, flee. Don't hang around until it gets ugly. Flee. If you find yourself in a constant need to delete your browsing history, or if you find yourself in a constant need to hide the books that you're reading, or uh, to not let other people hear the music that you're listening to, or you know the, all of these all of these inroads into our life where these sexual messages, this immorality, just washes over us, flee. Because the thing that you are allowing into your life is is distorting and perverting what God has designed for a beautiful purpose. It's hard to be a preacher in sermons like this because I know my own life and I know my own heart. And some of the deepest pains in, in my marriage to my wife, who's now leaving, she can't even take it. She's walking out on me. Boy, baby, come back. You can put it all on me. Again, got away from my notes and my wife left. It's hard because I know my own heart. I know me from way back in fifth grade, the first time I ever looked at a Playboy. The day that I opened the door to sexual sin to come into my life and just make a mess. I know what my life was like with my high school girlfriend. I know the choices that we made. I know the choices that I've made every day along the way to not flee, to not run, to make allowance for sexual immorality to wage war in my life. God commands us to flee. Yes, because it's sin. Absolutely. But he also commands us to flee because he loves us. 
because he knows what's best for us. And as somebody who has doubted God's best for me and decided to um, pursue my own interpretation of what is best, I, I can tell you from experience as the idiot up front who's talking today, it's really just best to listen to him. I mean, what almost wasn't when I think of my wife today and the kids that I have and the amazing extended family that I have and all of these gifts that I have in my life, they were this close to being taken from me. Thankfully, my wife, my then fiancé or girlfriend, I guess at the time, chose grace. Undeserved favor. She decided to look at me in the way that my Heavenly Father looks at me instead of the way that I looked at me. And she chose to love me, despite my imperfection. I'm so grateful that she did. Sexual immorality is just dumb. Don't do it. It's not worth it. Flee. Boy, that sucked all the moisture right out of my mouth. Flee because God commands it. But flee also because when he commanded it, he had your best in mind. Because he loves you so much more than you love yourself. And because he truly knows what's best for you, because he designed you with your best in mind. And so the things that he says, he says because he knows who you are, all of you. He knows the body, the wholeness of who he made you to be. Not just physically, not just your urges, but mentally, emotionally, spiritually. He knows you better than you will ever know yourself. And his commands are in light of his knowledge of who he's created you to be. They are the banks that keep us in the river flowing in the right direction, guys. Sexual immorality is nothing to joke about. It's nothing to uh, make allowance for, even a little bit. And so what does it look like for you to flee? Who are the people that you need to talk to? What are the relationships that you need to engage in around you? Many of you already have it. You're just not willing to let people into it. Many of you already have people who would call you, who would text you, who would care enough about you to help you out of the mess that you're in, but you don't want them to see your mess. You'll give it to God when you fall, but you won't go to your brother to keep you from falling. And yet he made us all members together because we are stronger together than we are apart. None of us were created to be islands. We were created to be joined in Christ as one And that's what gives us our strength. That and his spirit that lives inside of us. And so, what does it look like for you to flee today? What do you need to flee from? Who do you need to invite into those spaces in your heart that only God knows about and say, Brother, sister, I need a hand. I need you to walk with me through this. Paul's trying to get real with us today and help us to understand the real consequences behind this sin. Let's not, let's not downplay it or look in another direction. Because even though we're talking about temple prostitutes today, he's talking to us. 
the verbiage he uses, the Greek that he uses, yes, it applies to a specific situation, but it applies to every single one of our hearts who engage with the sin. Flee today. Right now, the Spirit is telling you what it looks like for you to flee. He is putting in your mind the person he wants you to talk to, and you have an enemy who, I mean, it is like, you should talk to this person. No, you shouldn't. That would be dumb. They would judge you. No, do it. No, Like, that's going on in your head right now. Because it went on in my head for years. Whenever this sin would come up, I can't tell people I go to Bible college. Stupid. Who are those people that you've got to have a conversation with today? Who are those people that you've got to let into this part of who you are to engage in that process of washing, of cleansing, of restoring what has been broken by the lies of this world? And let's talk about the lies of this world for a second. Let's talk about the lies of this culture. Because this isn't just, I, I don't know if you know this, this isn't just addressing sexual immorality. What Paul was addressing in verses 12 and 13 is a culture, Right? This is not just a sin problem. This is a sin problem that resulted from a source problem. Does that make sense? A sin problem that stemmed from a source problem. What was their source? Well, we don't know. Paul didn't leave a footnote. All things are lawful. Food is for the stomach. His stomach is for... Paul, you know what truth is. All things are lawful. Food, stomach, stomach, food, sex, great. Woo, no. I don't know where you got that from, but that isn't from the source of truth. That's a lie from culture. That is a lie from the world that you are living in. I get it. Temple of Aphrodite, thousand temple prostitutes, great thriving business. Some of you have eaten their meat. Delicious. But that way of thinking, that way of living, that comes from culture. That does not come from God. And so maybe for some of you here today, you're thinking, hey, you know what, sexual immorality, it's not really my thing. I'm single, I'm celibate, I'm searching God for who my, who my spouse is going to be, my thoughts are on the straight and narrow. Hey, that's awesome. Some of you are happily married and sexually fulfilled and, and man, you're, you're the fruit that comes out of your heart when you're anxious or when you're, uh, when you're burdened by life. You, you don't, you don't go to sexual immorality. You go, you go somewhere else. So maybe this doesn't really apply to you in that sense. But again, there are lies in the world around us that all of us buy into. And so maybe the sin for us today, you could just take out sexual immorality. And insert any single one of those sins that you find in the list above that stem from a lie that you believe that doesn't come from God. Does that make sense? This was written to this church 2,000 years ago. And we look at them and then we say, sex with temple prostitutes. What was wrong with those people? Well, what was wrong with those people was that their source of truth came from their culture. Their source of truth came from the world around them and their fruit followed suit. Does that make sense? So we have to constantly be running our lives through the grid of Scripture to say what is true and what are the lies that I'm believing. Does our culture follow God's Word? Does our culture think in accordance to Scripture? No, it doesn't. And we live in that world every single day. We rub up against it every single day. And if you think that that has no effect on you, then go ahead and read Scripture again. (laughs) Because it does. 
So the question is, how? How does it affect you? How does it affect me? What lie from our world are you believing that is now showing up in the way that you live your life? Because we take in lies all the time, right? We take in the the talk of the culture of the day. Think of the, the Hamilton County culture that we live in. Our jobs are everything. Got to get ahead. Got to get a little more. Maybe if I can just get to a place where I have a little bit of land. If I can get to a place where my 401k reads this. Or if I can get to a place where, man, I have, I have this many toys or, or I have all this in my, in my barns and my storehouses. Does that make sense with God's economy? No, but it follows the sin of greed, doesn't it? And if we listen to the lies of the culture, we can develop, we can develop a politic system, we can develop a religious system, we can develop everything around a lie and make it look really spiritual. Right? One of the things I see in youth ministry all the time, and I know this is gonna, ugh, this is gonna hurt, this is gonna hurt, and I'm gonna have to answer to this in a couple of years when my kids are in, are teenagers, is idolatry. The idolatry of our teenagers and how we allow them to take over our lives, take over our schedules, and we mask it under the idea that, well, I'm just giving them every single possible opportunity in the world right now, and yet they're burnt out, they're stressed out, they're anxious because they cannot live up to the expectations that we have just brought them into all willy-nilly. We've brought them in the work hard, work to get ahead mindset, and they're 12. My kindergartner got something in the mail about preparing for college. You laugh, but every other kindergartner got it too. And I guarantee there were a lot of parents who said, that's a really good idea. You know, we should start thinking about this. You know what? Let's get him in that club soccer because you know what? If he's going to go to college, he's going to have to get a scholarship. And if he's going to get a scholarship, he's going to have to be really good, right? So he's got to start soccer when he's two. I know he's not walking, but then he can at least get familiar with the ball. And then maybe by the time he's in high school, he can just run like this and kick the ball like Palo. And it'll just be great. Pele, not Palo. Paleo's a diet. But you get what I'm saying, right? How easy it is to buy into the mindset of the world who is living for this world. This is their everything. And if their kids fail, it's everything. If their kids don't get the best job or the best college or the best opportunity, it reflects on them as parents. Their identity is wrapped up in it. (gasps) Now they're anxious. Now their kids are anxious. Now grandma and grandpa are anxious. Everybody's anxious. Why do you think everybody's medicated in this world? My goodness, I'm anxious just talking about it. Where have we let lies seep into the way that we live? Do the way that we live, does the way that we live our lives truly reflect the way that God's word has called us to live? Look at the way that you parent. Look at the way that you work. Look at the way that you live. Look at the things that you pursue. Look at the things that you value. Where do you hear the talk of the day weighing into the way that you live your life? Maybe it's not sexual immorality that's showing up. Maybe that's not the fruit of the culture that's showing up. But we're all sinners, right? Yeah. Ray, pizza, it's here. It's ringing in my pocket. Sorry, I have a missions meeting. And Domino's is calling me right now telling me that there's 15 pizzas out there. (laughs) Domino's. Yep. Sorry. 
Holy Spirit, take control. Anyway, so that's what we have to do today. If it's sexual immorality, it's really clear. We have to flee. But if that's not your bag, fine. We all still have to come before Come before our Father today and allow the Spirit to do a work in our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, where have I grieved you? Where have I chosen to live by the talk of my day rather than the truth of your word? Where have I allowed the world around me to speak into who I am more than you? Because if that's there, that's a problem. And that problem is going to produce fruit. And that fruit is going to stink. So we all have some work to do. To take our sin and to consider its source. Let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. God, thank you for just loving us. We are all hot messes. And there's not a single person in this room who is perfect. There is not a single person in this room who is not wrestling with some kind of fruit that is a perverted reality in light of your truth. We have all bought into the lies of this world around us in some way, shape, or form. Or we have allowed the, the economy of this world, the sin of this world, to bring us back into the bondage that you freed us from. And in both, we need your truth. And in both, we need your Holy Spirit. And in both, we need the community that you've placed around us. God, we invite your Spirit into our places in our hearts that we normally keep locked away today. At least I know I do. And I pray that the light of your truth would shine into the darkness of our hearts and reveal any ways in which we do not reflect you, but we reflect the world around us. Convict our hearts and show us by your spirit who leads us into all truth what it looks like for us to flee whatever does not reflect you. God, we want to be a church that is holy and pure. Even though we are not defined by our sin, even though we are not defined by whatever brokenness of the flesh still remains, we are defined by the past, present, and future work of your Son and everything that he did and everything that he is. And for that, we thank you and we praise you. But God, may our response not be one of entitlement, but one of gratitude. And may we look to partner with you in the work that you're doing in us, but we can only do it through the revealing and the empowering work of your Holy Spirit. And so do in us what only you can do. Reveal to us what only you can reveal. And make us a church, make us a bride that is pure and spotless, holy and set apart for you. And may that be our passion as we pursue you as well. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.